morning. Maybe seated. Well, as I said just a few minutes ago, we are starting a brand new series from the Gospel of Luke called Songs of Salvation. And the reason for that title is when you read the opening chapters of Luke, four times people kind of burst into song when they hear about the arrival of Jesus. It's, it's a virtual musical number. It really is. Like you go through and Zechariah, Mary, the angels, and then Simeon all hear about the arrival of Jesus and they wax poetic and basically publish a song. So we're gonna be looking at those four songs over the next four weeks. That'll take us through Christmas and on to New Year's Eve. And you'll see why that's fitting. If you'll come on New Year's Eve, why Simeon is the right fit there. So we push, we push Christmas back like one week this year. So just, bear, we can do that. We have the preaching calendar. So we did that. Um, and we're gonna take them a little bit out of order. So the first song in the Gospel of Luke is actually Mary's, but we're going to hold off on that one until next week. And we're going to do Zechariah's song this morning, which is about the coming and arrival of John the Baptist. So I'm excited to dive into God's word this morning with us. Let's go to Lord in prayer, and then we will get into Luke chapter one. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the arrival of Jesus. Thank you that you have heralded his coming in such beautiful and tremendous ways. I pray that we would be freshly made aware of the deliverance that is available in Christ. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Hide me behind the cross of Jesus. In his precious name, I pray. All God's people said... Amen. Uh, hang on one second. I forgot something. Just wait a minute here. Hang on. Sorry. My bad. Just wait. Seriously, wait. Yeah. Sit down, Kristen. Yeah. <laughs> now, how did you feel during that moment? I mean, did you start to like, start having some questions in your mind? Like, what, what happened? Did he forget? Like, it's Sunday? Did something go wrong? Did something bad happen? The reality is that's what waiting does to us. 
And none of us like to wait. It's inconvenient. It's filled with uncertainty. And it often just feels like a waste of time. Waiting stinks. And yet, we all have to wait all the time. And if that was true for just 30 seconds, you started to have some anxious thoughts. Think about the nation of Israel. For 400 years, God had not spoken to them. God had been utterly silent, closing out the Old Testament between that time and the day of Zechariah. No word from God. During this time that the Gospel of Ruth was, was written, they were occupied by Rome. They were a mere puppet state of what they once were, and it didn't seem like any hope was on the horizon, and God had not spoken for 400 years. Put that in perspective. That is twice the history of the entire United States. So double that time, they had not heard from God, and they were waiting. But it wasn't just the nation of Israel that was waiting. The main characters in our story today in Luke chapter 1 are Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they too were in a profound season of waiting on God. Zechariah was a priest and a godly one. And Elizabeth, his wife, was a godly woman. And yet, here's what the Bible says about this couple. Look at what it says. Luke chapter 1, verse number 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. So what does it say? These are people of character. These are good people. Verse number seven, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So though Zechariah and Elizabeth were godly people, they had no children. And in that day, in that culture, that would have been viewed as a social stigma that no doubt weighed on this couple over the years. In other words, both the nation of Israel and Zechariah and Elizabeth had spent a lifetime of waiting, and no doubt they were asking this question. Is God going to come through? Is God going to show up? And if we're honest, we are all probably this morning asking that same question about some area in your life. Probably every person in this room, because you're a human being, is waiting on something. You're waiting for God to do something in your life, and you are probably asking the question, God, feels long, feels hard. Are you going to show up? Maybe it's the bill of health from the doctor that you're waiting on. Uh, maybe it's a relationship that you don't know which way it's going to go that you're waiting on. Maybe you're waiting for some sort of financial situation to resolve, and you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe you're waiting on some, some season of uncertainty to come to an end. You just don't know. And we all at times wait and we all ask the question, God, are you coming through? I'm not sure. It's hard to wait. It's hard to be patient before you. And that's why this passage is both relevant and encouraging for us this morning. Because here's what it reminds us. That even when it looks like the waiting might go on forever, God can step in and transform the situation. This is what happened in, in Luke chapter 1. In one fell swoop, in one moment, 
God ended 400 years of silence, heard the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and set in motion the plan to redeem the people of God from all eternity. In one moment, God invaded human history and changed things dramatically, which leads me to this point this morning. We can trust God while we wait. So what I want to encourage you with this morning, you can trust God while you wait. In your season of waiting, and I know you're waiting on something, you can trust the Lord. You might hear me say that and say, yeah, Ryan, I'm with you, kind of. But that's a Bible story. Like it's in the Bible and like God shows up in the Bible, but I'm not in the Bible. How can I be sure that God is going to show up for me as well? Well, here's the reality. This story is not fundamentally about Zechariah and Elizabeth. It is. They're, they're characters in the story. But really what this story reveals to us is not so much a lot about Zechariah and Elizabeth, but it reminds us of the character of God. When you read through this story, we are struck by who God is in the midst of it. And here's the good news for you and I this morning. Situations change. God doesn't. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your situation. Here's what, I don't have to know your situation. I do know this, the God of the Bible is always the same. His character is never changing. So while you wait, you can hang on to who he is and what he does and how he behaves. So that's what I want to encourage you with this morning, that you can trust God no matter what your situation is in the midst of your waiting. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you two reasons based on this passage of scripture, no matter what you're going through, that you can trust God. You ready? Reasons to trust God. Reason number one, rooted in God's character, God is sovereign. That's not a word that we use a ton today, but it's simply a word that the biblical authors frequently use to say that God is in control. That's what the word sovereign means. He's in control. This is clearly illustrated in our story. Let's get a little background to understand what's going on. In verses eight and nine, we are told that Zechariah is a priest. Now, here's the thing. There were thousands of priests, okay? There was lots and lots of priests. So Zechariah, the Bible tells us, is chosen to offer incense to the Lord. This would have been an honor, probably like a once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime thing. Like you didn't get to offer incense just willy nilly. You got selected by Lot. And so Zechariah gets this honor of going in to offer incense to the Lord. So he prepares for the big day and he goes into the temple to offer incense and something unbelievable happens. Remember, God has not spoken for 400 years. No messenger from God, no prophetic revelation, no dreams, no visions, no angels, no nothing. Zechariah goes into the temple to offer up incense to God and an angel shows up and starts talking to him. Silence is broken, shattered, as it were. And listen to what the angel says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. First of all, that's a dumb way to start. I mean, if an angel just shows up like, do not be afraid, sorry, failed. 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So not only does God in his mercy promise Zechariah's aging wife Elizabeth will have a son, but this son would actually be the forerunner to the Messiah. This baby would simultaneously bring both the personal and the national waiting to an end. The wait's over. It's over. Zechariah, heard your prayer. You're going to have a son, and I'm going to save my people. Deliverance is coming, and it's through this kid. So how does Zechariah respond? With joy, with gratitude, with worship? Unfortunately, no. Verse number 18. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. If there were facepalm emojis in that time, that should have been what was text to Zechariah by all his friends. Not his finest hour. He questions the Lord. Note to self, if an angel shows up to speak to you, don't ask questions. Just acknowledge the truth of what they're saying. Agree with them. You can sort it out later. For his unbelief in this moment, Zechariah is stuck, struck deaf and mute, probably both. So he can't hear, can't speak. Can't speak for sure, probably can't hear either. And how does the angel respond? I love it. I love the cheekiness here. How shall I know that this is true? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And he's like, uh, I'm Gabriel. Like, that's his response. Like, I'm an angel. Look, like... Enough said, done. Like, Zechariah, you should believe what I am saying because I am an angel. So then, Zechariah, he's mute and deaf in silence for nine months. Just kind of mulling. Well, I mean, what do you think this guy's doing? I mean, he is probably like beating himself up for the first several months, I'm sure. What, what is wrong with me? Why did I respond that way? But then in that silence, God starts to do something in Zechariah's heart starts to reorient him a little bit. And when the nine months is up and Zachariah's tongue is loosed, he comes out swinging. This is where the cue the musical number, right? Like all of a sudden he starts speaking and it is a torrent of praise to the Lord. Look at what it says, verse number 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for the house of his servant David, as he has spoken by the mouths of his holy prophets from old. Note that. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Note that. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Note that that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to the people and forgiveness of their sins, 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So what does Zechariah talk about after his nine months of not saying a word? You would think he would go on and on about John, like this promised child. But did you notice? That's not the main theme. Like he mentions John in there, but really Zechariah turns his attention to the Lord and he says, oh, the Lord has been unfolding his plan. That is the theme of Zechariah's song. Like God is sovereign. God promised to the Old Testament prophets that he would send a deliverer and now he's doing it. God promised to Abraham that he would keep his covenant and he is doing it. So Zechariah's heart in the midst of that waiting gets his eyes off of his own little situation and up on the God of heaven who is perfectly orchestrating his plan through the centuries of humankind. In other words, listen to this, the centuries of silence, the Roman occupation, the years of childlessness, all of the waiting were part of God's plan. Zechariah's song says that those 400 silent years were not a waste. God was not asleep at the wheel. He was not sitting down on the job. He was not on vacation. He was in complete control, flawlessly perfectly bringing his promises to fulfillment. Hear this church, your waiting does not equal God's inactivity. Just because you are in a season of waiting on God does not mean God is not busy. Sometimes when things are not happening as quickly as we would like them, we are tempted to believe that God has forgotten us or abandoned us. That is not true. Here's the reality. God's timetable and man's timetable are seldom the same. They are seldom the same. Your waiting does not mean that God is inactive. Let me show you that from scripture over and over again. After God promised that Abraham would have innumerable descendants, he waited 20 years before the birth of Isaac. After God gave Joseph a dream that his brothers would bow before him, he waited 23 years before it actually happened. After Samuel anointed David king of Israel, David waited 21 years before that became a reality. After God called Paul to take his name to the Gentiles, Paul waited 14 years before his first missionary journey. And even Jesus himself waited 30 years in obscurity before publicly revealing himself as the son of God. Let me ask you a question, church. Had God forgotten Abraham? Had God forgotten Joseph? Had God forgotten David? Did God forget Paul? Did God forget his own son, Jesus? Absolutely not. And if you are in a season of waiting right now, rest assured, God has not forgotten you. I'm not sure what you're waiting for right now. I don't know what it is. And I don't know exactly what God is going to do. But here's what I do know. He's going to work 
in that situation and be faithful to you. If you have trusted in the work of Jesus, God is perfectly, flawlessly, expertly unfolding his plan to bring about your maximum good and his maximum glory. Where do I get that? One of the most familiar passages in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28 says this. And we, what's it say? And we, one more time, and we, and we know that for those who love God, what's the next word? Say it again. Say it again. All. All things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even your waiting. God is at work even in your darkest valley, even on the time where you feel like you're sitting on the bench. He is still on the throne. Listen. The one and only God promised that he is for you. He is in your corner. He has your back. He is on your side. He is your ride or die. The sovereign of the universe is irrevocably committed to your good. And no matter how bleak the situation may seem, he is putting in work for your ultimate benefit. Just wait. And one of my favorite shows growing up as a kid was MacGyver. Any MacGyver fans? I don't know if the new one's any good. You're kind of doing this like it must not be good because old MacGyver, that was my boy, you know? The plot of every MacGyver episode was essentially the same. MacGyver, the hero, gets himself in some sticky situation. The bad guys capture MacGyver and he, using, I don't know, some toothpaste, WD-40, a pencil, and a roll of duct tape creates a fighter jet. I don't know, like, and gets himself out of the situation using just what is at hand. Unbelievable. I mean, you're always like, what's this guy gonna do next? I mean, he's just so smart. You can't capture this guy. He is so, oh, y'all put him in an office locker. That is a bad move. You cannot be doing that. What's the point? It's like MacGyver was utterly unfrustratable because no matter what was going on, he had a plan and he was able to execute that plan flawlessly. Listen, God's better than MacGyver. I bet you never thought you'd hear that in a sermon. God is the ultimate MacGyver. He can't be thwarted. He can't be frustrated. He can't be outmaneuvered. He can't be outplanned. He is the sovereign of the universe, and he is smart. Nobody can outmaneuver the Lord of hosts. He's always got a plan, and it's a good one. Or can I amend? He's always got a plan, and it's the best one. And even when the enemy tries to throw it, and even when it looks like things are dark, he's like, I'm just going to turn that around for the good of my people, for the glory of my name. You can trust God in your waiting because he is sovereign. He is in control and he is in your corner. So friends, in all your waiting, take that waiting to the one who's got it under control. You know, God's never lost a wink of sleep. One, he doesn't sleep. But two, if he did, he's utterly unacquainted with the feeling of wringing your hands. He doesn't know how to be anxious. 
He doesn't know how to be worried. He doesn't know how to be frustrated. Why? Because when you're sovereign and you're good, those emotions, those frustrations, they don't exist in your economy. God is saying, trust me. I got it under control. He is unflappable and he is for you. Rest in him in the midst of your waiting. Amen? But that's not the only reason that you can trust God in the midst of your waiting. You can trust God because he is sovereign, but you can also trust God because he is strong. Verse number 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a, what's it say? Horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, that's just not language we use a lot. A horn of salvation. I mean, what is that? Like some sort of musical instrument? What's going on there? Seems weird. Like God has raised up for us a violin of salvation. Or th th that's not what he's talking about, though. In the near ancient world, you know, pre-tanks, pre pre-bulldozers, pre-fighter jets, the ultimate symbol of strength would have been an animal with a giant horn on it. That would have been a symbol of strength and power. Um, in fact, the Old Testament makes allusion to a particular animal and its horn. Look at what it says. Psalm chapter 92, verse number 9. For surely your enemies, O Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn, look at it, like a wild ox. So what is a wild ox? Well, this is what biologists now refer to as aurochs. They believe they're extinct. But in the Near Eastern ancient world, a wild ox would have been not like a domesticated cattle or steer today. It would have been an ox that its shoulder stood about six feet tall. This is, a, this is a big animal, about 3,000 pounds, and its rack of horns would have been about six feet long. So can you imagine this thing kind of bearing down on something? I mean, that is scary. How many of you have ever seen the running of the bulls in Pamplona? You, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, these are just like standard issue bulls. These aren't like wild oxen bulls. And when they came running down the, down the streets of Pamplona, Spain, people get away. Because you've also seen the footage, no doubt, of when they catch the people. And they're just kind of like, whoop, and they flip them, and the guy's like a rag dog going flying. Well, imagine that times a lot, okay? So here is this wild ox that I think Luke has in view here. And he's saying, when God sends Jesus, he is sending the horn of salvation. This powerful, mighty, great horn to deliver his people. Jesus will wield that horn and aim that power at the enemies of his people. So think about it. Get in your mind this vision of a charging wild ox with its head down and its great horn ready to gore through anything that would stand in its way. That's the picture that we are seeing here of Christ. Christ is this mighty, magnificent, powerful deliverer who has come to gore through, to run over the enemies that would stand in the way of his people. 
He is more powerful than anything that would exalt itself against you over sin and death and the devil of hell himself. That is what Jesus came to do. He is the horn of our salvation. Sometimes we have this notion that Jesus is this docile, mild-mannered, quiet, reserved person with long, luxurious, flowing hair with a far-off look in his eyes. You've seen the pictures. I'm like, what is going on here? I, I, I especially appreciate the pictures like where Jesus is doing funny stuff with his hands. I'm like, what is going on? Is he double-jointed? I'm not sure. Now, is it true that Jesus came as a servant? Yes or no? Yes. And was he meek and lowly? Yes, absolutely. Did he come and was born in a manger? Absolutely. But here's the thing. Sometimes we emphasize one aspect of Jesus's character at the expense of another aspect of Jesus' character. Yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly, but listen, that's not all he is. There is more to Jesus than that. You know, we love Pastor Rod, and when you see Pastor Rod up on the stage, he is a passionate, funny, engaged preacher of the gospel. We love that aspect of him, but that's not all there is to Pastor Rod. Like you don't know Pastor Rod just because you've heard him preach. There's other aspects of his character. And if you're like, Pastor Rod is just this, you're being reductionistic. And if you say Jesus is just this, you're being reductionistic. Because Jesus certainly is meek and mild, but Jesus is more than meek and mild. He is also the horn of our salvation. What makes Jesus so glorious is he, unlike anyone else, combines in one person diverse attributes. Jesus is lowly and Jesus is holy. Jesus is meek and Jesus is mighty. Jesus is like us and he is utterly unlike us. It is the combination of all of his attributes that makes Jesus so glorious. So on this Christmas season, when we celebrate the manger, let's not forget the throne. Yes, Jesus is the baby, but he is also the king of heaven, the captain of the armies of the Lord of hosts, the warrior conqueror of the world who will lay to waste all who stand in his people's way. He is our deliverer. He is our conqueror. And we will bow the knee gladly to the superiority of King Jesus. Listen to how the book of Revelation describes him. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with the rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. And it is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
this dude is bad. He's so confident that he dresses his army in white. He's like, y'all sit back. Let me take care of this. Just look pretty. Put on your Sunday clothes. Because I will take care of the business. I am unstoppable. You're not here to help me. You're here to watch me. Look, this is good news for us. Because he is the horn of our salvations. I do not know what enemies seem to be threatening you right now. Fear? Your past? Your future? Injustice? Sorrow? Hatred? Pain? Loss? Scarcity? Suffering, illness, old age, uncertainty, death. I do not know what your enemies are, but here's what I know. No force in the universe can overcome, overpower, or overwhelm the Lord. He is the horn of salvation. He cannot be stopped. Why can you trust him while you wait? Because of who he is. He is sovereign. He's never taken a day off. And he is strong. He is one bazillion and oh. He cannot be defeated. He cannot lose. And so in our waiting, we must trust him. as the band comes right now, here's what I wanna do. I don't know what you're waiting for. I do know you're waiting. Two reasons I know. One, you're human. <laughs> you're human. You're broken people living in a broken world and things don't always go the way that we plan or we want them to. So you are waiting on something. You probably are waiting on a half a dozen things right now. And in your heart, you're saying, Lord, when are you going to come through? Lord, are you going to come through? The other reason I know that you're waiting is because I have the privilege of serving as your pastor. So I know stuff. <laughs> Some of you are facing heartbreaking situations and you're just waiting for God to do something. Here's what I want to encourage us right now. Can we bring that waiting to the Lord? Say, God... I want to trust you. And if I'm honest, it's hard sometimes to wait. That ugly impatience monster creeps his head up in my life all the time. Lord, I want to wait on you in a way that is trusting that you are sovereign and you are strong. Here's what I want to encourage us to do this morning in order to do that. I want us to minister to one another and encourage one another. So I'm gonna ask you to break up into some groups, three or four people, and just simply say this in that group, I'm waiting on God for this. We don't need your life story. You don't have to do footnotes. All you need to do is just share a little bit about your burdens. I'm waiting on God. Maybe you as simple as I'm waiting on God for a relationship right now. 
I'm waiting on God for a financial matter right now. I don't know, whatever level you wanna share, but just briefly share, and then somebody in that group is just gonna pray for you. It's gonna pray over you that you would be able to trust that God is strong and God is sovereign. He's got a plan for you, and he is big enough and strong enough to meet you in your need. So I wanna encourage us to encourage one another. Can we do that together? So I want you to break up into groups of three or four and just say, I'm waiting on God for this, and then begin to pray for one another. I'll come back in just a moment. So break up right now into groups of three or four.
Father, you have said that we should cast our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. We thank you that when problems are too big for our shoulders, they're never too big for yours. Lord, we thank you for your promise that those who wait on you will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Oh Lord, teach us to wait. May your people believe that you are sovereign. You never take your hand off the wheel. You never fall asleep. You never forget and that you are strong. No force of nature or devil of hell can change your plan or stop your hand. Lord, help us to remember who you are. Lord, may we trust you while we wait. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. as it is and as sweet as it is to minister to one another, to bear one another's burdens, pray for one another's troubles and season of waiting. Jesus didn't come primarily to deliver Zachariah and Elizabeth from childlessness. Didn't come primarily to save Israel from Roman occupation. And he didn't come to save us from the hardness of the troubles of life. He came to save us from something far worse. He came to save us for our sin, from death, from hell, and from the devil itself. Listen, Jesus didn't come to give you a nice life. Jesus came to give you an eternal one. So the great horn of salvation has lowered his head at any enemy that would have the audacity to exalt itself against his people. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He may not have you if you trust in the work of Jesus. I want you to get a mental picture in your mind of that lion on the prowl coming after you, coming after the people of God, and here comes the mighty ox with his head down and his horn lowered, and he impales that beast through. And there standing majestic before us is the mighty horn of our salvation with the carcass of the devil draped over his horn. I don't know what you're waiting on, but I do know this, God has delivered us in all the ways that really count. Yes, life is hard, life is tragic, life is broken, but Jesus has the power to save us forever. Trust in him while you wait. Look to him while you wait. And don't let the troubles and the adversities of life overshadow the character of your deliverer. Listen to this statement. While you wait for deliverance, focus on the deliverer. Just get your eyes there. 
remember who he is like God did in the heart of Zechariah? He was all about having this baby. And then he came out praising the one who gave him the baby, not the baby. Let's remember who our Savior is. Yes, he came in the manger. Praise God he came in the manger. But when he comes again, he comes with a robe dipped in blood. And every enemy that exalts itself against those who have trusted in him will be destroyed. Wait, wait, wait. Amen. Let's worship him together.